Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney's Writers' Festival 2022. My name's Amanda Collins from ABC Television, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here to this session, Stolen Focus, with Johan Hari. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land on which we stand and sit, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Before I introduce Johan, who's joining us today from London, sadly, I need to make a few short announcements. Please switch all mobile phones to silent, if not off, and we ask that you don't record this event. Keep photos to a minimum, and use the hashtag Sydney Writers Festival if tweeting. And of course, there will be time for questions at the end of this session, so please get some clever ones going. So why have we all lost our ability to focus and how on earth do we get it back? That's the question Johan Hari asked in his newest book, Stolen Focus, which I hope a lot of you have read. It aims to not only change, but possibly save our minds. He unmasks the powerful forces that render us vulnerable to companies raiding our attention for profit. But most importantly, and this is what I love about the book, is that he provides a hopeful vision for how we can reclaim our waning attention, both as individuals and collectively as a society. If you don't know, Johan Hari is an internationally best-selling author and journalist. His first book, Chasing the Scream, an amazing book, New York Times bestseller, and was adapted into that feature film, The United States versus Billie Holiday. He writes for The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Le Monde, and many others. His most recent book is this one, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Johan joins us live via video from London, where it is 3 a.m. in the morning. Johan, are you there? Please make him very welcome, everyone. <laughs> oh. Hey, everyone. Johan, you are <laughs> such a trooper. You look so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and it's 3 a.m. How can this be possible? So I think the biggest division between human beings is not like left-wing versus right-wing. It's not atheists versus religious people. It's morning people versus everyone yeah. else. And I am so deeply not a morning person that like 3 a.m. does not feel that you bad. You are a bright-eyed so night owl. The only thing I'm worried about the only thing I'm slightly worried about is I had this really weird experience the very first time I spoke to the Sydney Writers Festival in person, and it's given me this slightly creepy sensation as I'm talking to you. So what happened was um, I had just landed and I was like horribly jet lagged. And for some reason, I thought I had like a day before I had to give my speech. And they're like, <laughs> right, are you ready to go? And so I sort of pushed on stage completely out of it, much more tired than I am now. And I made this... Um, really dumb joke that led to this terrible thing. So, um, or I feel like it led to a terrible thing. So I said, uh, I went on stage and I said, um, I would like to say I'm really happy to be in Australia, but actually I'm really disappointed because oh, no. <laughs> I was raised my whole childhood by my grandmother watching The Young Doctors and Sons and Daughters, oh, yeah. uh, which for younger members of the audience were like Tolstoyan epics about Australian life in the 70s. Uh, and I said, but I've been here for like, 12 hours and I still haven't been kidnapped and replaced by an identical twin that I never knew existed, right? <laughs> and I got like very mild laughter in the room. Uh, and then I said, I don't know what possessed me. I said, 
So, you know, for people who don't know, Reg Grundy was the producer of these shows. Yeah. I said, is Reg Grundy still alive? And someone in the audience said, yeah. And I said, well, God should strike him dead for the way he misled me about your country. Right, anyway, no one laughed. <laughs> a bit of a weird comment. Like, just not long afterwards, I turned on the television and Reg Grundy died. I was like, <laughs> so now I feel like when I speak to Australian okay. audiences, no I have the power no <laughs> to just strike people dead, right? So I'm tempted to ask you all, is Tony Abbott still alive? But I better not. I'm not going to use my powers. So, naughty. Okay, Very naughty. Back. Okay, we'll let you get away with that because it's 3 a.m. where you are. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask you to start with a joke, but I'd love you to start by starting where you start the book, which is you tell the story of how you took your beautiful young nephew, teenage, I think, teenage nephew, on this wonderful trip to Graceland in America. Tell us, tell us about the trip and what happened. Yeah, and by the way, thank you so much for doing this, Amanda. I'm really happy to be with you. Um, this was the moment when I decided I needed to write the book. It's funny, but it's actually my godson. When, when he was nine... Godson. My godson... De- oh, no. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Oh, oh sorry. Continue. Sorry, yes, everyone. we're just going to... Okay, it's like everyone. the nightmare of Zoom, but on a big yeah. screen. Let's just say to everyone, I think with this link, occasionally we're going to get these little freezes, but cross fingers, they're only going to last for 10 seconds max. So keep going, Johan, right. we're with you. Start uh, again. Uh, I've got an Australian. I've got an Australian friend, and he always gets really irritated when uh, we get glitches in FaceTime. And I'm like, we are literally on opposite sides of the planet. We like, are. Let's embrace the miracle that we can look into each other's faces at all. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the um, yeah. So so my godson, um, when he was nine, developed an obsession with Elvis Presley. I never found out how he even knew who Elvis was, but it was incredibly cute because he didn't know that impersonating Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person in the history of the world to do an entirely sincere impersonation of Elvis. Um, and when I would tuck him in at night, he, 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 he kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. Obviously, I skipped over the bit at the end where Elvis shits himself to death on the toilet. And, and one time I mentioned Graceland, where Elvis lived. And he said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, sure, the way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing, you know, Next week, it'll be Lapland or Legoland or whatever. And he looked at me really intensely and he said, no, do you swear one day you will take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. So he dropped out of school by mm. the, when he was 15. Mm. And by the time he was 19, mm. this will sound like an exaggeration, it isn't. He spent almost all his waking hours alternating between his iPad, his iPhone. His life was just a kind of blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. Screens. And, and, it, uh, and it was really like, like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, you know, where mm. nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just, just behind where my laptop is now. And I had been trying to talk to him all day and I just couldn't get any traction, right? It was just, couldn't get any. And to be totally honest with you all, I wasn't that much better, right? I was staring at my yeah. own devices. And, and I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before, and I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He didn't even remember this thing all those years before. But I reminded him, I said, let's go on a journey all over the South. Let's break this numbing routine. But if we do it, you've got to promise me one thing, which is when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because... 
there's no point going if you're just going to stare at your phone the whole time. And he really thought about it and he said, you know what, let's do it. So I think it was two, maybe three weeks later, we took off from Heathrow to New Orleans where we went first. And a couple of weeks after that, we got to Graceland. And when you get to the gates of Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no person to show you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds like the one yeah. I'm wearing now. <clears throat> and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go mm-hmm. right. It tells you a story about that room. And everywhere you go, there's an image of that room on the screen in front of you. So what happens is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at, their, their iPad, right? There's a slightly weird sensation. You're walking around, but no one's really looking. Mm. And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. Um, it's full of loads of fake plants. And I'll never forget it. There's a, a Canadian couple next to us. And the, the man, the Canadian man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And, and I laughed out loud because I thought he was kidding. And I turned and looked and him and his wife were just swiping back and forth. And I, I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room, right? You, you don't have to look it up. <laughs> you don't have to look it up on your iPad. Literally, we're here. We're there. It's in front of us. And they looked at me like I was completely insane and, and backed out the room. And I turned <laughs> to my godson to laugh about it. <clears throat> and he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he could not stop. He couldn't stop. And I went up to him and I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand and I, and I said idea. to him, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not present at your own life. You're not showing up at the events of your own existence. And he stormed off. And I walked around Memphis on my own that day. And that night I found him at the Heartbreak Hotel down the street where we were staying, sitting by the big uh, guitar-shaped swimming pool, looking at his phone. And I went up to him and I apologized for getting so angry. And he didn't look up, but he said, I know something's really wrong, Mm. but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, you know, we came to get away from all this distraction, but there was nowhere to go to get away from it because it was everywhere. And that's when I thought, I need to figure out what's actually going on here, what's happening to all of us. Exactly, a poignant and and sadly such a familiar story. And as you say, it's not just teenagers, it's all of us. It's our phones, it's our email, it's the internet, it's all so deliciously distracting. And, And you yourself like all of us, we're going from device to device, from tab to tab. And so you make this radical decision to do a big digi detox and you take yourself off to beautiful beachside Provincetown in Cape Cod. You've got no phone, you've got no internet, you've got a really old computer but no internet. Tell us how that went in terms of being a digi detox. Was it successful? Well, the reason I did it is because it felt to me like with each year that passed, things that required deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, watching films, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still mm. do them, but they were getting mm. harder and harder. And at that time, I had two stories in my head, which I later realized were actually wrong. Uh, the, the first story was, well, you're weak. What's wrong with you? Why can't you discipline yourself? Just be stronger, be tougher. 
And the second story I had was, well, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over. So because those were the two stories that later learned they were hugely oversimplified, but because those were the two stories I had in my head, the solution seemed kind of obvious. Okay, use your willpower to separate yourself from the smartphone. So uh, you mentioned that a film got made out of one of my books. So I was in the very lucky position that I had quite a lot of money. And I thought, what, what? Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get out away for the first time in my life I've been in that position. So I'm just going to get away from this. So I booked a place in Provincetown in Cape Cod. Um, for people who don't know Provincetown, um, I made it, you can ask me in the q and I made an obscene joke on a podcast, uh, Australian podcast, which I probably shouldn't make now, but um, the, about Provincetown, to compare it to somewhere in Australia. But um, <laughs> I, um, I, it's a, it's a little kind of gay resort it's town. A gay resort, in, in, yeah. In, at the tip of Cape Cod. In fact, its official slogan is just the tip, which I've always liked. It's the kind of place where... <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's the kind of place where we're dying to hear. Has anyone... So yeah, yes. I went there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the kind of so place where what happens, Johan? Oh, it's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus, right? It's a great place. Um, so I went there for three months, and I had no <laughs> smartphone, and I had no laptop that could get online, right? So I had no access to the internet. And I, and I, I spent three months in this bizarre... And I remember before I went, people kind of saying to me, but what will how will you survive? What will you do? And I kind of go, these were often people my age, I was nearly 40. I kind of said to them, well, you remember the first half of our lives? I'll do what we did then. <laughs> right? But, um, but it, it, was, it was a really strange experience. Um, and there were some real lows that we can talk mm. about. But the thing that most surprised me is before I went, like I said, I was nearly 40. I thought, well, maybe my attention is getting worse because I'm just getting older, Right. My attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read books for eight, nine, ten hours a day. I could have really deep, long conversations. And I remember at the end of it, um, I remember the very last day I went to, there's a lighthouse at the edge of Provincetown. And I was looking back over where I'd been for three months. I'd hardly even been in a moving vehicle. Um, and thinking, God, this is amazing. Why would I ever go back? This is, this is so great, right? Why would I ever go back to the way I lived before? And I got the ferry back to Boston the next day. I got my phone and my laptop back from my friend Shailene. And within two months, I was 80% back to where yeah. I've been, right? Not 100% back. I never went 100% back to where I've been, but 80% back. And I was like, well, what's, what's happened That's here? Right. But this is, this is I, what happens to I realized, all of us, isn't it? This is exactly what happens. For many of us who've tried these digi-detox, it's not as fantastic as yours sounds, we're good for a while and then we slip back into these old habits and we tend to blame ourselves, I think. I tend, we tend to think we've been a failure. So it's kind of like failing at a diet, right? You're on the diet, you're good, then you it's slowly a very good slip analogy. back. It's very similar. But it's not... It's a very good analogy, yeah. It's not just us as individuals you discover, right? Or you, you contend. Well, this is what... I only really understood it and it reminded me to come back to the diet analogy because I think it's a really good one, but... I only really began to understand it when I went to Moscow in Russia, which now, God, I couldn't do that now. It's funny to think that. Yeah. Uh, to interview a guy called Dr. James Williams, who had been at the heart of Google, left because he was horrified by what they were doing to people's attention and became, I would argue, one of the leading philosophers of attention in the world. He, he lives in Moscow because his wife works there for the World Health Organization. And, and he said to me, look, the mistake you've made, Johan, is that it's what you've done. Digital detoxes are fine. They, they can give people relief. But he said, 
What you've done is it's like thinking the solution... The solution is individual, but it's collective, I bet he's going to say. I'd wear a gas mask. Ah, but, yeah, sorry, I'll just repeat that. But, the solution is like trying to wear a gas mask to protect you against pollution. Yeah, yeah. and he said, you know, look, I'm not against gas masks, right? If... If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. But the solution to air pollution isn't for all of us to wear gas masks. The solution is to deal with the problem at the source. And, and he said, you need to understand the attention crisis as a collective crisis. This is happening to all of us. Mm -hmm. It's not your fault as an individual. And that really is what spurred me. So I ended up going on this really big journey all over the world, from, from Moscow to Melbourne to Miami, to Montreal, to not just the cities mm. that begin with the letter M. Mm. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. Um, and what I learned from them is that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been hugely increasing in recent years. Yeah. And that includes some aspects of our technology, but goes way beyond them, actually, to lots of things I had never even thought about. Yeah. Um, and, and it's only when we really understand these 12 factors that we can begin to deal with them both at an individual and a collective level. Johan, one of those experts that you visit on this epic journey is uh, Soon Lehman, a Danish scientist. Um, because, you know, when I was reading the early stages of your book, I thought, yeah, but hasn't the world been speeding up always? And, and, and don't we, you know, as we age, doesn't our attention deteriorate? Are we some, somewhat in denial? But you find that Soon Lehman has evidence, or for the first time gathered evidence, that in fact the world is speeding up at a faster rate than it has been in recent years, right? Yeah, the, the, there's actually lots of evidence for this. For example, the average office worker now focuses on only one task for only three minutes. Um, one small study found the average college student now focuses on only one task for only 65 seconds. Um, but Professor Lehman, you're absolutely right, is a Danish, uh, amazing Danish professor at the Technical University in, in, in Copenhagen, and who I, I went to interview there. And, and he, he did the, I mean, go into more detail, but he, he to be the headline, he proved that our collective attention is dramatically shrinking. It was a really important study. And he actually showed that our collective attention has been drastically shrinking, going right, it's been shrinking every decade since the 1880s. It's been getting lower and lower and lower. Uh, and obviously it's accelerating now. So it, it was essentially because this, this sort of, um, yeah, the, the, so it really helped me to, to think about that. And it's part of a much wider body of evidence. There are all sorts of factors that we know negatively affect attention that have hugely increased. Think about something as simple as sleep, right? We sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Mm. Um, children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. Uh, sleep is absolutely essential for people's ability to focus and pay attention. I can talk a lot about why in the book. I can talk more on what we can do about it. But So there's so many factors that have been proven to harm attention have been hugely accelerating. Yeah. I mean, again, we, that, that's we not almost, an individual failing. We almost think it's normal to be exhausted, you know, to, to, not, to have yeah. not had enough sleep. And I think, I think you contend at one point that, that our economy, the drivers are, of our economy, demand that we have less sleep. Yeah, this, this is something that was said to me um, by Dr Charles Seisler, who, who's uh, arguably the leading expert on sleep in the world. He's at Harvard Medical School, where I interviewed him. And he discovered lots of things about, about sleep. There's um, one that really chilled me. So he did this pioneering experiment. So he, he, he showed many things. For example, if you stay awake for 19 hours, 
your sleep deteriorates as much as if you were legally drunk, right? So my attention has deteriorated today as much as if I was legally drunk. Uh, but he did this experiment that really drove it home for me. So he, he, what he did is they, um, they get tired people. They're not that tired. And they put them into, uh, they basically combine two technology. They, they take two technologies. This te- the machine created simultaneously scans your brain to see what's happening there and scans your eyes to see what you're looking at. And what he discovered is when you're tired, you can be looking around you. You can appear to be as alert as I am now, you are now, everyone in the audience is. But whole parts of your brain kind of gone to sleep. Mm-hmm. It's called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. So it turns out when we say we're half asleep, that's not a metaphor, right? Lots of us are going around literally half asleep a lot of the time. And there's another uh, wonderful scientist who helped me to understand this called Professor Roxanne Prichard. And what Professor Prichard showed is, and many other scientists as well, the whole time you're awake, your brain is creating what's called metabolic waste. Uh, it's what she calls brain cell poop, right? And it's building up throughout the whole time you're awake. And when you go to sleep, um, a watery fluid rinses through your brain, your, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up, and that brain cell poop is carried out of your brain down into your, your liver and eventually out of your body. If you don't get at least seven hours sleep a night, your brain doesn't get to clean itself properly. So you know that feeling when you feel kind of clogged up when you haven't slept properly? Yeah. Again, mm. not a metaphor. You are literally clogged up with metabolic waste uh, and, and your brain just can't function as well. So we, you think about, and it, that will it, it, uh, manifest in in adults as drowsiness in children it will manifest as mania for as children that they're, they're they exhaustion manifests as, as yeah. mania and obviously a large part of the book is about our kids and the catastrophe that's happening with our children's attention which is absolutely not their fault mm. before we get on to solutions and we will we will devote time because it's so important and it's what i love about your book is that you don't just document these depressing problems you have concrete ideas for how we can overcome it but the thing that fascinated me was your discussion about how we've lost the ability or the demise of daydreaming and mind wandering because we have these phones. So if we've ever got a couple of minutes, we can just sort of check in on what's going on on the phone, what's going on in the world. And it feels great to be connected a lot of the time. We love it. Um, but, but mind wandering is sort of not... Well, if it, if it exists as a, a child daydreaming at school, they're often scolded, you know, stop daydreaming. But you maintain it's actually a really important part of deep thought. Well, it's so interesting is because when I went to Provincetown, I thought, well, okay, I've come there to improve my, my, what, what we think of as our spotlight focus. So your spotlight focus is your ability to screen out everything else going around you and focus on one thing for a long period of time, right? And that is indeed a really important form of focus. I would say to everyone in the audience, you know, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of requires a huge, required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to focus and pay attention breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down, you feel less competent because you in fact are less competent. So I thought, um, so I have a little bit of hay fever at the moment and I'm very conscious, if you've ever written a book about legalizing drugs, it looks very dodgy if you start rubbing your nose. So I apologize <laughs> that I'm doing that. The, no, um, no, no, we're not the, at all suspicious. Um, <laughs> the um 
<laughs> uh, yeah, but, but so when I went to Princeton, I was like, okay, I've come here to, to deploy my spotlight focus, right? To narrow down and focus on one thing for a long time. But after I'd been in Provincetown for maybe three weeks, so I'd brought with me, obviously didn't have a phone, but I'd brought with me my iPod, which when I got it, it seemed like the most futuristic nice. thing in the world. By the time I went to Provincetown, it seemed like a relic from Noah's Ark. Um, <laughs> but and it's if I remember, whenever I put it, and I had audiobooks and music stocked up on it, and I, whenever I went for a walk, I would listen to an audiobook. It's funny, I would have to turn on my headphones, my noise-cancelling headphones, and it would always say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for oh. Johan's iPhone. And it would go, <laughs> iPhone cannot be found. It was this very sad-sounding voice. But, so I went for these long walks, and then about three weeks in, I was like, you know what, I'm going to just go without my audiobooks. And I just started going for really long walks where I had nothing. I had no phone, I had nothing to kind of stimulate me. And it, I, I found that those were, I always felt a bit guilty. I'm like, well, this is not what you came here to do. But actually, after I left, I interviewed, there's been a huge renaissance in the science of mind yeah. wandering mm-hmm. um, over the last 20 years for various reasons, partly because of breakthroughs in brain scanning. Um, and so I went to interview loads of people who've done these pioneering breakthroughs, um, like Professor Nathan Spring in Montreal. And he explained to me, in fact, daydreaming, mind wandering, which is when you just let your brain roam without having anything specific to think about, is an essential part mm. of thinking. It's when we daydream that we process our past. It's when we daydream that we anticipate and prepare ourselves for the future. It's when we daydream that we start to make connections between the different things that we've done. It's when we become creative. It's why so many scientific and artistic breakthroughs actually happen, not when the Indeed. person's sitting at their desk staring at the screen or the page, but when they leave and, and suddenly we all have that experience where you're like, you stop thinking about something and it all comes together, comes right? To but what's happened, exactly, and I would argue in a moment, in the moment, we're sort of, when it comes to this question in the worst of both worlds, we're neither focusing nor are we mind wandering. Yeah. We're just kind of constantly switching. And I think switching is a really important concept to explore if you're okay with it, Amanda. But I think um, switching is um, what, what, we're, what we're doing at the moment. Most of the time is we're switching in it. This is, I think this will be playing out for everyone in the audience. Yeah. So I went to M- MIT to interview uh, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, an amazing man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time, the, the same rest time. of us are not far behind. So what happens <clears throat> is scientists like Professor Miller get people into labs, not just younger people, older people too, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And it turns out you can't do more than one thing. What you do is you juggle very quickly. You're like, what did Amanda just ask me? What's that message on WhatsApp? What yeah. does it say about the election on the TV? Wait, what did Amanda just ask me? And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You make more mistakes. You remember less of what you do. You're much less creative. And I know that sounds like a, I think a lot of people are thinking, yeah, I get that, but that's a small thing. This is a huge thing. I'll give you an example of a small study backed by a much wider body of evidence. Um, Hewlett Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers and he split them into two groups. And the first group was told, 
get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. And at the end of it, he tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you and me spoke to Fat Spliff together now, Amanda, and got stoned, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So at least in the short term, being chronically distracted and interrupted the way so many of us are is twice as bad for your intelligence as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk doing one thing at a time and smoking a spliff yeah. than sitting at your desk being constantly distracted and not getting stoned. Now, clearly, you'd be better off doing neither, not to say <laughs> anyone's getting the wrong idea. But this is why Professor Miller said... <laughs> we'll switch back in a moment. Johan, so um, as well as listing all these causes like the lack of mind-wandering and, and the diminishing sleep, of course you discuss one of the most obvious culprits, technology and social media, but you say it's not actually the iPhones and the computers and the internet itself, it's the way they're designed, and I think many of us now have an understanding of that if people have seen The Social Dilemma or read the work of Tristan Harris or many of these Silicon Valley dissidents who themselves are concerned, who themselves do not allow their children to have iPhones who themselves have mindfulness classes running all day at Google because they're so aware of the problems. But, how, but, but that is the business model. How are we ever, collectively, going to change the mind of corporations that need that business model to survive and make profits? They're not going to change. Well, I've gone to a really important question, Amanda, and obviously I spent a huge amount of time in Silicon Valley interviewing people who designed key aspects mm. of the world in which we live. But you've gone to a crucial question, which is about change. And I think there's a, 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 a moment in the history of Australia that can really help us to understand mm -hmm. what we need to do now. For a minute, people think, what the hell is he talking about? Bear with me, because I think it really helps us to unlock this. So you'll remember, Amanda, I remember when I was a child, the most... The, 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 the standard form of petrol in Australia and Britain, and in fact all over the world, was leaded Lead. petrol, right? Lead. And a bit before my time, it was normal that people painted their homes with leaded paint, right? And, and it was known, going right back to ancient Rome, that exposure to lead was really bad for people. And in the 1920s, an amazing scientist named Dr. Alice Hamilton, just before they introduced leaded petrol, said, this is a terrible idea. Exposure to lead harms your brain. If it's in petrol, it will get into the air. Everyone will be exposed to it. We must not do this. There's an alternative that's much better. We don't have to do it, right? An alternative form of petrol that didn't have lead in it. And she got mansplained out of the room. The men launched leaded petrol yeah. and a catastrophe was launched upon the world. So by the time you got to the 1970s, it was very clear the science was undeniable. I mean, it had been undeniable all along, but it had, the evidence had accumulated that exposure to lead is really bad for people's brains and particularly bad for children's children. ability mm. to focus and pay attention, right? Really harms it. So what happened? <laughs> the battle against lead. Why are we allowing this? Why for company to harm and screw up our kids' brains. This is madness. And it's important to know about all petrol or let's ban all paint. That would have been foolish, just like no one on our side of the debate is saying, let's get rid of technology, let's all join the Amish. No, no disrespect to the Amish, you're very nice people some of the time. Um, but the, what they said is, let's deal with the specific components that are harming our children's ability to focus and pay attention. So these mothers, they fought 
in the moment cars were introduced into our society, this has been what they ran on. This is folly. This is madness. You know, go back to your cleaning. There was a lot of sexism about them. And what happened? It's like Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. They won. Yeah. Everyone in the audience knows we don't have leaded petrol. We don't anymore. have leaded petrol. We don't have leaded paint. As a result, the Centre for Disease Control has calculated the average child is now three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not um, wow. had we not banned leaded paint mm. and petrol. Now that to me is a really great model. So for all of the twelve causes of a, uh, that are harming our attention and focus that I write about in Stolen Focus, I think there's two levels at which we've got to tackle it. I think of them as defense and offense, right? There are loads of things we can do as isolated individuals to defend ourselves and our children from these factors. I'll give you an example of one because I literally have it to hand. This is the closest I will ever get to being a QVC presenter. Uh, so I have here, I don't know if you can see it, uh, I have here something called a case safe. Oh, That's my phone imprisoned in it. Well, you've locked your phone. Yeah. So the way it works is you take off this lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, push it down, and it locks away your phone for anything between five minutes and a whole day, right? So how long, have you, how long have you locked it away for at the moment, Johan? Um, it's counting down to four minutes. So actually, <laughs> put, I reappear in the middle of this conversation. But, um, the, um, but so the, the, I won't sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we both imprison mm. our phones. I won't let my friends come around for dinner unless they lock their phones away in the phone jail. Excellent. Um, so that's an example, and I get... Dozens of examples so let, let, of individual just, things we, we can, can do. Can we actually break this down? Because I think now we are moving into what can we do about this? How do we reclaim our attention? And you quite clearly say we can do it as an individual, but then we also have to do it as a society and collectively. And as an individual, if you can hear me, Johan, you, changed your, you say you've changed your life in six major ways. Oh, have we lost you? Johan? Hmm. So he did, I'll just fill in the gaps here. He did choose six changes in his life. He ooh, made a, a pre-commitment, as you saw with the phone. What should we do? We've lost him for about five minutes. For about five minutes? Yeah, we've just lost him, so just give us a couple of minutes. Okay, all right, just let me know. Yeah. So quite impressively, as an individual, <clears throat> Johan, as you can see, has the box for the phone. He decided that he was never going to feel shameful about it because I know a lot of us do when we fail at this, oh, my God, the phone's in the room for an hour and 10 minutes later I'm going to check something. So no, he decided there was going to be no more shame attached to his own failings to stick to digi-detoxes. He says, but we'll check in with him about this because I don't quite believe it, he says he spends six months a year off social media, not all in one big chunk, in various chunks. He allows his mind to wander when he walks, which he described to us, and he's getting a lot more sleep. But the thing I think he, he says in the end, which is, is really something to think about and quite inspiring, is that if enough of us feel this way, it really is time that we started to do something about it. And he refers to previous people's movements, they are in fact, that have gone on before that have seemed to be incredibly impossible to overcome. The one about lead in petrol and paint, the fight against CFCs. And if you've read his book, he actually also equates the fight for focus or the fight for our attention 
uh, with the fight for feminism. He says that it's equally as insurmountably a mountain. It seems to be as insurmountable as as that mountain was and continues to be in some ways. So I think it's a real call to action by, by the end of this book, if you've read it. How many of you have read it? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's really quite a fabulous read because it doesn't just leave you depressed. It actually really makes you question your own behaviour. And, and there's a wonderful description where he talks about how we have the, you know, our notifications for... Facebook or emails or whatever it is, news flashes, is like this cocaine drip, this drip of cocaine behaviour that we've all become addicted to. Now, I wonder if we're going to have him back. We're getting to 20 minutes to go, so perhaps if you, some of you have questions, we could think about what we're going to ask him. Um, what else can I tell you? I'm here. Oh, yay. I'm Andrew, I'm here. I was just <laughs> sorry. I just ran through your hand, your the six commitments you made to personal change. And the one that we wanted oh. to check in with you with, because we were very impressed to hear that you take six months a year off social media, not in one chunk. How's that going? Yeah. Oh my God, I feel so much better. And like the thing is, uh, Professor Jonathan Haidt, a wonderful person who's at uh, uh, the New School in New York, um, sorry, NYU Business School, uh, he he has this great phrase. He calls cell phones experience blockers, right? It's a brilliant phrase. Mm. And partly, part of the problem is, it's not just what, um, it's not just the time you waste when you're on it, it's what you don't do when you're on it, right? And this is particularly true of children. Look at teenagers. Teenagers don't go to each other's houses anymore, right? Even before COVID, there was just an enormous decline in teenagers literally spending face-to-face time with each other. And indeed, children, although children are a bit better than teenagers. Um, So just, you can do loads of interesting stuff when you're not wasting your time on Twitter, right? Turns out, who knew? Um, I I like also the way, Johan, sorry to interrupt, but I like the way you say um, you don't like the person you become when you're spending a lot of time on social media. You know... We all like to think we've got these pristine personalities, but the truth is your personality is hugely altered by your environment. And if you're in an environment that is designed to make you angry, hostile, we can talk about why, I think it's really relevant to your election actually, Um, Mm. the the hostile, angry, pissed off, jealous, uh, which these things are explicitly designed to do, as I learned from the people who designed them, that, that affects you, right? You know, um, it, it beca- it, take care what technologies you use because over time, your personality will come to resemble those technologies. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the... I mean, we also have to... It's interesting because before, uh, before the technology sabotaged us, uh, yeah. I, was, um, I was talking about, you know, there's all sorts of things we've got to do to defend ourselves, but it's also important... You know, we've also got to go on offense against the forces that are doing this, like those mothers um, with, with the, the lead. lead and the lead paint. And, and, I, and I stress that because that's a big part of the book, along with the personal solutions, because I want to be really honest with people, because I don't think most books about attention are being honest with people. Um, at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and saying you know what, mate, uh, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, 
well, screw you, I'll learn to meditate. That's really valuable, but you need to stop pouring itching powder over us, right? Um, so we need to take on the forces that are doing this. And there's, I went to places that are doing that from, you know, your neighbor in New Zealand to France. We absolutely yeah. can and tell need a, to yeah, do tell this. Us about, but, tell us about the New Zealand example. You go to an office in Rotorua where people have really considered these questions and, and in fact, the role of stress the, the amount of stress is astronomical, of course, in many people's lives now. And, and what do they do in that office that is really helpful for people's focus? Well, well, stress is really harming our ability to focus and pay attention. And Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's the Surgeon General and leading medical figure in California, gave me a great analogy to understand this. She said, imagine you're walking down the street one day and out of the blue, you're attacked by a bear and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, something completely involuntary will happen to your attention. You'll find it harder to say, read a book, because your attention, your mind will just be scanning for risk, right? Something came out of the blue to attack you, so your brain is like, what the hell else could come out of the blue? Okay, now imagine you were attacked by a bear again, right? Um, at that point, you're going to really struggle to do deep focus, because your brain is going to be like, in a state of what's called hypervigilance. What the hell is going to come next? Now, I think COVID crisis put a lot of us into a state of hypervigilance, yeah. right? The bear came back. The bear came back twice, right? We were in these completely unprecedented moments. I remember at the start of the pandemic, lots of people being like, oh, we're going to be shut inside. I'm going to, I'm going to learn French on Duolingo. I'm going to read War and Peace. And you're like, no one learned French and no one read War and Peace, right? In fact, people <laughs> Googling, how do I get my brain to work, increased by 300%. Yes. Yeah. Um, partly for that reason. So we've got to look at some of the factors that are causing stress. Anything that reduces stress improves attention. And one of the things that is stressing us out is that we work way too much, right? And mm -hmm. um, we work more hours than ever before. And even when we're not working, we're effectively on call because yeah. our boss could message them at, at any alert. time of the day or night. I, mean, I remember when I was a child, not that long ago, the only people who were on call were the prime minister and doctors. And even doctors weren't on call all the time. Now, 35% of us are effectively on call all the time we're awake, right? Uh, we feel we can never stop checking our phones. So there's a really interesting experiment in New Zealand uh, in a company called Perpetual Guardian. Lots of people will have heard about this experiment, where they moved from a five-day week to a four-day week for the same pay. Right? So they were paid for five days, but they worked for four days. So I spent a lot of time in this company, Petrol Guardian. I interviewed a lot of people that I interviewed everyone who worked in their offices in Rotorua. Um, and this was this experiment in New Zealand was actually studied by the Auckland Business School. And they discovered something that at first seems really odd. They, this company achieved more in four days than they had in five. I don't mean per hour they did better. I mean, overall, overall, overall. they achieved more. And this is something they've seen everywhere up. they've done a four-day week yes. experiment. In yes. Microsoft in Japan, um, that productivity went up by 40% when they went to four days. In um, uh, Toyota in Gothenburg in Sweden, they, they went up by 120%. And at first, I, to be honest, I just didn't believe it when I first read it. I kept... I, I kept you couldn't believe it. <laughs> expert on organizational behavior in the world. And he said to me, it's rocket science because, you know, because they've been doing 10 hour day. Of course not. You want them to be rested and up for the game. Well, why exactly. would the rest of us be any different? So there's lots of big collective fights, I argue, we, need, we should be working for to yes. get our attention so back. The Given that the technological <clears throat> environment we live in is so exhausting, I would argue a, four, a fight for a four-day week. 
is really important. Yeah, the four-day week is one, and, and you also support the, the right to disconnect, which I know is, is a real thing in France in particular. There's legislation, I don't know how that's going, but you advocate that we should all bring this in, introduce this into our, into our workplaces and work environments. Yeah, so, so in France in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think anyone needs to translate. And, <laughs> and, and the French government, under pressure from labour unions, and it would never have happened without pressure from labour unions, mm. um, set up an inquiry to figure out what the hell's going on. And they discovered that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phones when they were awake because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble. They felt complete. So I can give those people all the lovely self-help tips in the world. They can't do it, right? They can't do it. If their job depends on it, they can't do it, right? Um, so for that, you need a collective solution, which is what the French government, again, under pressure from labor unions, introduced. It's very simple. They introduced a law giving every worker in France what's legally called the right to disconnect. It just says two things. Your work hours have to be stipulated in your contract. And when you're not working, unless they're paying you overtime, you don't have to check your phone or look at your email, right? So when I went to Paris, just before I went there, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, had been fined 70,000 euros for trying to get one worker to check his phone an hour after he left work, right? Now you can see how that's a big collective change that frees people up to make the individual changes they want to make. And this is true across the board for so many of the things I write about. There are, there are lots of things we can do as isolated changes, from changes to our school system. If you wanted to design a school system that would ruin children's attention, you would have the test-based, stress-based garbage that we expose our kids to. We need to restore childhood. Children need to get out of their homes, partly because when they physically run around, they Play. develop more brain connections. And when they play together freely, they learn how to use their yes. attention and how to not be anxious. We've taken all that away from our children. The only place our children get to explore anything is on Fortnite. We can hardly be surprised they're obsessed with it. So there's lots of these big changes from both ch ch children to... We've got to regulate big tech. We've got to ban the current business model and force them to move to a business model that is based not on hacking and invading our attention, which the current one is, to actually healing our attention. That's something that absolutely can be done. Uh, so there's a whole array of these changes that we've got to make. But it requires us to a real shift in consciousness. You know, we need to stop blaming ourselves. You're not weak. Mm. Your child's not weak. There isn't something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the environment we're living in. And we need to stop only asking for small changes. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds. And if we understand what's happening to us and we band together, we can take them back from the forces that are stealing them. So inspiring, Johan. Absolutely endorse everything you've said. I'd love to invite our audience to ask questions. I can't actually see. Do we have people who would like to ask questions? Yes. You're happy to take questions, Johan, if you come back? hundred percent. Fantastic. All yep. right. I just landed here. Can you hear me all right? Yes, beautifully. So in the interest... Hey. hey, thank you. I'm going to buy your book in the minute I walk out of here. The, in the interest of real conversations, I'm a big fan of switching phones off, especially around a dinner table. But I find with certain people close in my life, family and friends, who are completely addicted to phones, that if I say, why don't we switch these off, 
I get one of three reactions. One is, you're not the boss of me. <clears throat> Another one is, get with the program, this is the modern world and you just have to deal with it. And then the third is what I think of as a sort of emotional blackmail response, which is, but my kids might call. Mm. And so I wondered, I'm fascinated by the idea that you can get your friends to switch them off because I just find that very difficult. How do you sell that message in a way that's diplomatic and warm and encouraging and actually shows people that we could actually have much better conversations if you just switch them off? Yeah, it's such an important question. Yeah. I don't want to oversell my success. Lots of my friends push back on me on this. But the, the, um, I think there's a, a few things. I think one is entering the conversation in a very loving spirit. Uh, generally, I start by saying, do you have any worries about your attention? It's a very rare person. You sometimes get a person who's very kind of defensive. goes, no, right? <laughs> but almost everyone says, yes, I do. So I, generally, if I've never had the conversation with a friend before, I preface it. I say, well, what, what, what are you worried about? So I start with very open-ended questions about what do you worry about in your attention? What do you, what do, what do you miss that you, from when you used to be able to pay attention? And then I'll drop in a few little select facts that tend to resonate with people. One, for example, Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found, if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. Yeah. So we think, oh, but I only took three seconds to glance at the phone. But you go... It takes you three seconds to glance at the message and then 23 minutes to refocus your brain afterwards. And I think people do intuitively know the truth of that and enter into them. I think just sharing that it is really hard. You know, it's really difficult. And, you know, Trist, um, Amanda mentioned Tristan Harris, my friend who had been at the heart of Google, or I think one of the most important people in the world now fighting for regulation. He always says, look, you can try and put down your phone. Every time you do, there are 10,000 engineers on the other side yeah. of the screen <clears throat> devising really clever methods to get you to pick it up again. So also getting them in a sense, it's not that you're in a struggle with me. It's, uh, you're, in a yeah, you're in a struggle with the company, in fact, with the algorithms. Exactly. So a loving and compassionate co conversation, identifying that they feel the problem. If they don't think there's a problem, you won't persuade them. But almost everyone is worried. Uh, so a conversation about that, then a few discrete facts, and then building that narrative. It's not me against you, it's us against the machine, right? Uh, quite literally against the machine. Um, I think that generally builds up. The other thing about children, so I always get rid of this excuse. By, when people come, I mean, if you've gone out for dinner, you can't do this. But they come around, I've got a landline. So I'm like, okay, um. give the babysitter the landline number and put <laughs> your smartphone in the phone jail, right? And you want to get people as well. You're not Joe Biden, right? You don't need to give orders if there's something happens in Ukraine. We're not that important. The world can be without you for two hours, right? Um, and once they've done it a few times, um, if people feel judged and criticised, it doesn't work, right? And God knows it, it's tempting to be judgmental and critical. You've got to do it in a spirit of love and compassion, but it, it can be done slowly over time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Do we? Cheers. Thank you. Do we have a question from this side yeah, of the yeah. room? Hi, thank yeah. you so much, Johan. It's a fantastic book. I haven't read it, but it's at home, waiting to be read. Oh. Um, I am a mother of a teenager, so this is incredibly close to my heart. Um, and I have two questions, really. Firstly, um, on, and you sort of touched on this before from an education perspective, a lot of technology is creeping into education. Obviously, it's important that children learn how to monitor and manage technology, but um, are you talking to educationists? Are they interested in, you know, are you talking to sort of education policy makers? And the other question I want to ask is, how is your godson? Oh. 
Oh, well, thank you for asking. He's actually thank doing you. much better. He, um, he, and funny enough, the answer to those two questions is related. Thank you. That's a really lovely question. Um, so attention evolved to attach to meaning, right? When you find something meaningful, it's, it's much easier to pay attention to it than if you don't find it meaningful, which is why it's such a disaster that we've rebuilt our school systems in Australia, in Britain, in the US, around getting our kids to memorize meaningless shit for pointless tests, right? If you mm. wanted to kill their attention, that's what you'd do, right? You'd build this school system around just things that are stripped of meaning. So we've got an education system. It wasn't great, but in the past, and by the way, this is not the fault of teachers at all. Teachers resisted this at every stage. It's the fault of politicians who redesigned the school systems in these ways. Um, so, uh, uh, and it's, it's related to my godson because he, he found a job that was really meaningful to him uh, and yeah. that he really loves. It's helping people. And his attention is really healing. And in a similar way, um, yeah, so there's all sorts of things we need to do in terms of the school system. I mean, let's look at a country that has the low, the, the country in the developed world that has the lowest level of attention problems, Finland. Yeah. What does the school system do? Kids don't go to school at all until they're seven. They just play. Between seven and 16, they go to school from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. By law, for every 45 minutes they're learning they have to have 15 minutes where they play freely um, they have almost no tests between the ages of 7 and 16 they have almost no homework they have the most literate children in the world they have the happiest children in the world and 0.1 percent of their children have been identified with adhd right so i think that tells you i mean obviously it's a healthy society more generally but that tells you something really important we are pointlessly stressing our children with tests that literally measure nothing of any value uh, we're getting them to memorize garbage. Uh, it, it, it's a really bad system. So we need to fundamentally alter the school system. Also, in terms of technology in schools, when they go, oh, we need all this technology in schools, otherwise they won't understand technology. You're a bit like, believe me, our kids will not struggle to understand technology. They're using it the whole rest of the time. I went to lots of schools, like Berkeley High School in Berkeley in California, where they've just banned cell phones in the school system. So the whole of France has banned. There's no cell phones are not allowed mm, in schools. Mm. You, you have to have them locked away. Um, you, you lock them away literally when you arrive. At same at Berkeley, you, you, you mm. have a pouch uh, that you have to lock it away in. Um, and everything got better after they did that. Kids started playing again. They started looking at each other again. They started mixing with each other. Um, so I, I think we should, just, we should give our children one space where they are not glued to screens. We should just ban cell phones from all our schools. Thanks, Johan. Got another question over here, yes. Hi. Hello. Thanks, Johan. Thanks, Amanda. Um, you're leading on, actually, from what you were just discussing. Uh, in the book, you spoke of an ADHD-ish Western society. Following the rise of ADHD influencers, especially late-diagnosed females on social media, there are now significant wait times uh, for psychiatrists. They're being flooded with you know, appointment requests. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on ADHD talk. And are we being sold medicine for profit over true mental well-being? Mm. Great question. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. So uh, this is a complicated question. And of all the topics I write about in the book, this is the one where the experts I interviewed disagreed the most. Debate, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, so I, I'm somewhat more tentative in my answers on this, but I have a, quite a few thoughts on it. Um, so in theory, everyone 
agrees with something, kind of the technical term for it is the biopsychosocial model. So what that means is for any mental health problem, whether it's depression, addiction, um, ADHD, there's three kinds of cause. There are biological causes like your genes or changes in your brain. There are psychological causes like stress, which we've already talked about, trauma, be a social cause we've just talked about, right? So in theory, everyone agrees there's these three kinds of cause, bio, psycho, social, and they all interact and they play out to some degree in every individual, obviously differing degrees for different individuals. But as Professor Lawrence Kiermaier said to me, in theory, we have a biopsychosocial model where we acknowledge this complexity. In practice, we have a bio, bio, bio model. All we do is talk to people about the biology, right? So your child is struggling to focus. Australia is actually a bit better. I interviewed some really good child psychiatrists in Australia. But in the US, for example, your child is struggling to focus. You go to the doctor. And in some very extreme circumstances, giving children stimulant drugs might be of value. Um, but focusing exclusively on the biology is not in line with the scientific evidence. And I think is dis ultimately disempowering. It might seem empowering at first, but it's ultimately disempowering because it lowers people's ability to do anything about it. Um, so absolutely, the people describing themselves on, on TikTok as having ADHD have a very real problem. Some of them will have some biological contribution to that problem that should be honoured and respected. It is not a coincidence that in that time, our kids sleep less, they eat food that has been scientifically proven to harm their ability to pay attention and make them manic. It's bonkers to claim that yeah. there's no connection between the increase in children presenting with attention problems and all these social and environmental factors. It's just, it's not tenable. And that really became clear for me when I went to interview, this is going to sound like a joke, it's not a joke. I went to interview a man, a very nice man named Professor Nicholas Dodman, who is a um, professor of veterinary science at Tufts University. And oh, he yeah. pioneered the yeah. diagnosing of ADHD in dogs. In dogs. Right? So what happens is loads of people bring them, bring their dogs to him. He's also a vet. And they can't focus. They bark a lot. They run around a lot. Um, they really don't like being left alone. And so he pioneered giving them Ritalin, just giving them stimulant drugs to, to, to uh, deal with their attention problems. In fact, he's pioneered the mass drugging of animals across the United States. If you ever go to a zoo where there's a polar bear in the U.S., that polar bear is taking loads of Prozac and meth. Of right? tranquilizers. Kind of the, you know, the, because of him, there are parrots on Valium. There are walruses on Prozac. I mean, it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, the actual cuckoos, right? Um, and, and, um, and when I went to interview him, before I went to see him, I thought he would say, oh, well, these dogs have got ADHD because there's something biologically wrong with them. The kind of things that doctors... Dogs are meant to run around for four hours a day off leash, right? No, almost no American dog gets that. He described to me a dog that lived in an apartment in Manhattan that had ADHD, was running around all the time. It was sent to live on a farm in upstate New York. Mysteriously, its ADHD went away. Yeah. So I think that helps us to see what he acknowledged that the ADHD in other animals is a, is a product largely of the environment, right? Now, it's true. We are the first human society ever to try to get children to sit still for eight hours a day. No humans before us have ever done that. It's a crazy idea. Children need to run around, right? We have the most physically inactive children ever, right? Not through their choice. We've done that to them, right? 
Um, you think about the, the, so people like Professor Joel Nigg, the leading expert on children's attention problems in the United States, talks about ADHD has some biological contribution, but genes are switched on and off by the environment. And he documents, and I go through in the book, a huge array of environmental changes that have happened that are harming our children's attention and focus. So insofar as the, the ADHD TikTok people that you described, insofar as they are talking about their problem and seeking sympathy, I'm 100% on their side. Uh, the problem is real. Their suffering is very real. Mm, they mm. deserve a lot of love and compassion. Insofar as they're promoting a bio, bio, bio narrative, a narrative that says this is purely a biological problem, then with a lot of love and compassion, I would argue to them that we need to expand the picture, which is not to say the biological contributions they're describing are not real for some people. They are. But we need to expand that picture to have a more honest conversation. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're falling into the trap of it's not true that it's purely biological. So we need to have a really honest and loving conversation where we acknowledge all the causes and we deal with them one by one. Jonathan, thank you so much. Johan, Hari, please uh, put your I would, I would just say before you go, Johan, that I, I would encourage everyone to buy this book and to get involved with a movement that Johan is starting called Attention Rebellion. And it was really heartening to see that there are, in fact, already a, a list of many, many groups involved in various ways, addressing the causes and doing, actively doing something about this. So, Attention Rebellion. Go, Johan. Hooray! Thanks, everyone. Hooray. Cheers. Thank you Thanks so, so much. much, Amanda. That was such Thank great you. Questions. Thank Cheers. you, everyone, for Bye. focusing Bye. for an hour. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.